Welcome to Tech on Reg, the podcast that explores all things at the intersection of law, technology, and high regulated industry. We're talking fintech, regtech, sextech, and more with thought leaders and entrepreneurs from around the world to share insights, trade viewpoints, and get us all thinking about responsible innovation. And here is your host, Dara Tarkowski. Hello, everyone. I am Dara Tarkowski. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Tech on Reg where I get to chat with really smart people about what's happening when law meets tech meets highly regulated industry. Today, we're tackling a subject near and dear to my nerdy lawyer heart. Uh, It's an area of law which I've personally focused on for several years and quite frankly prompts some of the scariest conversations I've ever had with clients. We can barely get through a week nowadays without reading about a new data breach, some new type of cyber threat, and loads and loads of chatter about prevention, privacy, and protection of our data. The question I inevitably get as I work with clients through compliance issues surrounding the subject is, can someone just tell me what the freaking rules are? Isn't there just one set? And unfortunately, I get to be put in the unpleasant position of saying, sorry, client who's paying me a fair amount of money, not so much. So are our regulators making it more difficult for organizations to actually get the hard work of data protection and cybersecurity done? With the alphabet soup of our regulatory environment, lack of regulatory standardization, and piecemeal legislation, how are organizations supposed to tackle the subject? Our guest today is Dignette DiPiero. Dignette's the Vice President and Senior Counsel, Center of Payments and Cybersecurity for the American Bankers Association. Uh, Dignette joined the ABA in March of 2008, and at the ABA, she focuses on state, federal, and international regulation of technology, cybersecurity, privacy, data security, and all of the emerging trends in banking, including fintech, blockchain, IoT, AI, and social media. Welcome to the show, Danette. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. And I'm happy to meet another banking tech law nerd. How exciting is that? Uh, who's, <laughs> also, who's also a girl. I, also, I, I, also I, a I would like to add, I mean, the, that universe is narrow to begin with. And I feel like you know, once you once you narrow it down to a you know to that gender, we're we're getting it's a real small it's a real <laughs> real small crew. Um, we are small but mighty. Uh, so I think I you've got I think one of probably the most interesting roles um, in dealing with these subjects based on your role within the ABA. Um, you get to you're working within an organization that represents you know. Uh, largest financial institutions um, in the country, financial institutions, large and small, um, who, you know, who've really been, you know, the target of much of the uh, cyber data privacy and data protection, you know, ire of the lawmakers, um, clear target for, you know, for hackers. Uh, So I have to imagine that particularly from your membership and your own work, um, the subject is a is only increasing in in popularity and increasing um, in importance and significance to all of your member organizations. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It has become the hot new topic. I have a bad habit of following the hot new topics in my banking career. And when I first started at ABA, I thought, oh, be nice and quiet and I can move on. I actually started doing work on ILCs in the very, kind of in the 90s. And then it moved to, uh, I got into, it moved to ABA. I thought it'd be a nice, quiet career here. That was three months before the banking crisis hit. So I moved to basic safety and soundness rules. I created my portfolio around what I called emerging trends. 
because I saw things like social media and green banking and what we call them peer-to-peer lending coming up. Um, and I had some conversations with some of my, um, let's say wiser minds in our field. And I was asking, what are we doing about these subjects? And I w- it was actually told to me around peer-to-peer lending that no one, no customer bank would ever want would be using those services. That has now become what we call FinTech. So right. I ignored what this person said to me and actually created my own portfolio that I called emerging trends. And I start throwing into all of the things that were happening in banking that we didn't have regulations around yet, but we knew regulation was going to happen. So things like what became FinTech with peer-to-peer, social media was a big area of my focus. And then all the new stuff coming up, which I think now I think the word even FinTech is a bit um, too small. And I think it's really that idea of the bank use of technology because it is become at this point accepted accepted as well as transformative. Um, There was a recent, uh, a short white paper that came out from the OCC where they're talking about their supervisory priorities going forward. They do not use the word FinTech anymore. And they're referring to their cognitive technology and operations. So I do think there's this pivot really looking at how do we incorporate things like, you know, machine learning and AI into how we approach banking. And we know we're going to get there as an industry before that regulators do. I wonder if that change in um, uh, phrasing uh, resulted from any of the reaction that came from last year's announcement of their FinTech charter. They weren't so shy about using the word FinTech then, were they? That's true. It doesn't just become <laughs> bank, it's just bank charters. No, it's, um, it's, 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 it, is, it's, it is notable and I'm, I'm watchful as to what the implications are. So I know one of the many hats that, that you wear is uh, cool. as co-lead a cybersecurity profile, which is an open source sector-wide approach to state, federal, and international cyber risk management, which I understand is based on the NIST uh, cybersecurity framework. I would love to hear more about what DISIC is doing and what that initiative is all about. So this actually, it, this, this project has been underway for the last, I would say three, it might be pushing four years at this point. Um, but what we realized in 2016, when the joint agencies came out with their AMPR on cybersecurity, that we were seeing the same thing. And around that same time, New York DFS came out with their state cybersecurity rules. There was actually some municipal rules that I think were coming out of Chicago. So we began to see that we started having that, that what we can call almost body anxiety about what we saw as this kind of emerging patchwork approach to cybersecurity tended to be very prescriptive. And it wasn't responsive either to the actual risks that we're seeing, how banks who tend to be ahead of the curve, especially on tech and cyber, were actually approaching and mitigating those risks. And and also anytime you put something into regulation, its ability to be flexible and kind of breathe with the dynamic threats that we see in cyber and the ever-changing responses to cyber, it couldn't be done. And And it wasn't gonna be done in this, draft document that we saw in 2016. We need to make sure that there is, um, uh, they are dynamic such that they can properly breathe and move um, in order to accommodate the unique and dynamic cyber threats that continue to evolve. So what we did is in 2016, we as an industry approached the agencies about developing a kind of a new approach towards the regulation and supervision of cybersecurity. The desire was to have a regulatory and supervisory framework that um, embraced what are kind of globally recognized uh, and and best practices in cybersecurity, such as we were seeing in NIST or ISO or IOSCO, 
And uh, we, it was a small exercise that we first started with the FFIEC CAT tool. And we kind of put, used the cybersecurity framework as the kind of grounding framework and kind of pushed CAT through it. I would say I'm Italian, so I think about it as like a spaghetti colander, like, you know, <laughs> spaghetti maker. You kind of make, you know, rational, uh, you kind of rationalize complexities with the spaghetti maker. So that was kind of our, our new cybersecurity framework. And what we realized is that there, there was a lot of commonality, not only with Kit, with the CAT, but with all these other frameworks and tools, um, New York DFS being one of them. Uh, the, the, the G20 came out with their cyber principles around the same time. And we continued to roll all these different, even the FFIEC handbooks, we rolled all of that into this kind of common approach to cybersecurity with, with a financial services lens, but used the NIST cybersecurity framework to rationalize all that complexity. And we're able to get the sign-off of the agencies. We were working with them um, over a number of years that a bank can complete the cybersecurity profile one time with a, whatever evidence is that they want to use for their primary regulator. And then the other regulators that they may also interface with locally or nationally or internationally will use that same documentation and approach for their own examination purposes. So that's well, a... So basically, it lets the bank do it do it one time. It gets an 80% right for 80% of the institutions. They do it one time, and it becomes kind of their universal document for all cybersecurity regulation and supervision based in this. Well, obviously, the what you've been working on um, with Physic is financial services focused. But if that structure proves to be, you know, a, an effective model. Um, I don't see a lot of reason why other highly regulated industries, whether it's, you know, food or energy or uh, healthcare, uh, couldn't really adopt the exact same sort of framework in order to uh, alleviate some of that regulatory burden um, and create the efficiencies that you all have created. I would say that's very possible. Uh, we've gotten some at least initial interest from the other critical sectors about this approach. Um, we've gotten quite a bit of interest internationally from the other banking supervisors in Asia, the EU, uh, Latin America, about kind of using this as their kind of model for cyber supervision. It also lets the agencies not be the cyber experts and allows them to rely on the real cyber expertise of groups like, you know, the National Institute for Standards and Technology has been doing, like, this is their day job. So let right. those you know, entities that do this well dictate what good cyber looks like. Well, it's interesting because it seems as though there were a period of time where every regulator um, seemed to think that they could ensure their immortal legacy in, in data privacy and cyber by issuing their own standards, all of which were geared towards the same thing, but a little bit different. Um, do you see that with the adoption of this sort of standardization, everyone, you know, maybe put their hands up in the air and said, you know what, um, this is not going to be our immortal legacy let's let the experts be experts in what they know how to do? I think there's a couple of different converging trends. One is we were seeing that convergence of cybersecurity, data management, even privacy. And it's hard to silo and wall off those different components from each other. So if you're going to have kind of this common approach to all, piece, all those pieces, it requires a different mindset and a certain level of flexibility. The other thing, and I think we're seeing that at, again, state, national, international level. If you talk about, it's very easy to go from cybersecurity to GDPR and CCPA. Um, it's harder to have those conversations kind of in a vacuum. The other piece that I would say is the agencies, 
themselves took a different tact internally and actually staffing the development of the, of the policies around these issues. Um, I give a incredible, uh, incredible respect for, especially at the, the Federal Reserve, they brought in, so their chief technology officer, another woman in, in technology that we should Yay! hang out with. Yay, absolutely. <laughs> so Nita Davis, who now is, who was the former CTO at the Federal Reserve, who I adore, is fantastic, just intellectually, she's a, I always enjoy meeting with her, is that she was a practitioner. She was their CTO at the Fed. She ran a NIST shop for the last decade. She's ran a FISMA shop, you know, for the last five years or so. And they realized the need to start bringing practitioners in to give a practitioner's eye to the development of cybersecurity supervision and regulation. Um, they brought actually another a staffer at the Fed who's a former CIO at a tech company has only been in banking a couple of years within that policymaking group focused on cybersecurity. So that's really different. We're not seeing as much as I love tech-focused lawyers. Um, sometimes <laughs> the best tech and cybersecurity <laughs> regulation may not come from our tribe. But bringing in some of those, um, those those experts to say, you know, using this makes a lot of sense. And at the same time, we as industry, we're really starting to inter- interface with our own CISO, CIOs, CIOs within the banks saying, we need to come up with a new way to supervise. And why don't we actually use the international standards that are already out there in cybersecurity? So it was kind of a convergence of a couple of different things at the same time um, that well, got us where we are. Well, here's a question then. I don't think it's a secret to you or anyone who's listening uh, to the podcast right now that the issue around the issues, plural, around privacy, cybersecurity, and protection of our data have become incredibly politicized. Uh, We see the issue used as talking points, and especially as we're gearing up for the 2020 election, I'm wondering, uh, do you think that due to the politicization, did I say that word right? The yeah, we'll we'll go with that. Due to the fact that this has become such a political issue, do you think a change in administration uh, and a real change, um, you know, in the executive branch should that occur? Do you think that's going to kind of shake up the, I guess, the new trends that you're seeing within the regulators, or do you think that the new trends are mm-hmm. here to stay? It's a really good question. Uh, my, you know, my first reaction to that is the politics as well as the headlines, because what I'm also noticing in the last couple of years is how headline sensitive the supervisors are and how those headlines end up in exams. Yes. So if you look at something like, and it has nothing, and I'm going to use a couple of examples. I know nothing about any of the banks or the breaches that I'm going to discuss. This is not a, um, don't read any, anything into this merely other than when things happen in the news, I think as an industry, we need to be really focused on what is the headline risk that shows up in my, in my bank exam or the supervisional, supervisory trend. If you look at something like Equifax, the first question that start coming up in exams was, what's your patching policy? Yep. And um, I would say post-OMB, we start getting a lot of focus on data management. So what data do you have? How old is it? How are you using it? How are you keeping it? Um, another trend line that we're starting to see is, um, is around management. If you are seeing anything in the news that there is controversy amongst, you know, uh, at, at the board level or at the, 
in any kind of large corporation, I'm really starting to see a hesitation around, you know, if you have a CISO, that, you know, it's like the bad stereotype. If you have a CISO who may not be the best communicator in the building, pause, long pause. Um, what does that actually mean? <laughs> My brother, my brother is a computer scientist. I say this with great love and affection. Um, you know, what does that actually mean for the ability? And you, and you juxtapose that with oftentimes senior leadership at a bank that didn't come through the kind of the tech route. So they know what a good right. loan looks like. They know what treasury, what, what a good investment portfolio looks like. But their ability to say whether or not their cybersecurity methodology is the best is they just they have to believe what they're being told from their staff. The other piece of it becomes what is my ability to give effective challenge if I don't know. I don't have a good answer. I don't know what the right answer is. So it almost becomes there's this piece of, I would expect us to start seeing a focus on management. And because we're actually starting to see that come up in the news around uh, that lack of, a lack of comfort potentially between senior management and the CISO track and their ability to communicate may actually be creating its own vulnerabilities. It's interesting because. I agree with everything that you just said, particularly at the C-suite and the board level. Um, it is difficult enough, I think, that within the biz- within business units of a financial institution, for example, trying to get those business units on board with uh, compliance or cyber. I, I think that there is a long story history of those divisions within a large organization having trouble communicating effectively with one another even though everyone's goals are really aligned. Um, And now when you elevate the significance of those issues to the board and C-suite level, you know, what are the core competencies now of a director for one of those organizations or someone in the C-suite to have a base level of understanding, to be able to effectively communicate with their CISO around these issues, appreciate the significance of them. And then if you really don't have that sort of depth, what are your then obligations to go out and utilize third parties in order to make sure that you're doing everything correctly? Um, mm-hmm. I think all of those questions now very clearly percolate to the top of, you know, or should percolate to the top of uh, any C-suite agenda or any board agenda. Curious on your thoughts on, you know, making sure that you have that third party support. I would say what I always refer uh, banks to is that the in the IT handbooks, there's an entire chapter that's dedicated to management, which I think oftentimes gets left behind when we're thinking about IT, especially what we have as supervision. We're so focused on the the prescriptive pieces of um, how your network should be set up and what practices and what policy procedures should look like that sometimes the management booklet kind of gets left behind. So we do actually have, it's the supervisors have opined on the importance of management. And the part of I would say avail yourself of whatever resources, be it a third party, be it getting yourself educated. Is it bringing in a cybersecurity expert uh, onto your board or as an external director? Do you have someone in the room who can give effective challenge? It's looking at your ability to train. The other piece of it, if you don't understand it, what's your ability to properly resource from a strategic and budgetary perspective? So there's a lot of ways for the industry, for those actors in the industry who don't feel up to speed on this to get up to speed or to surround themselves with people who may have better answers. Um, but I do hear, I, I'm hearing an uptick of frustration from senior level executives who they know this is an issue 
they know they have to tackle it and get better at it. And um, they, I think they oftentimes they get a feeling that they're not quite sure what the right answer is and how to get there. I think that you're right. There's definitely, in terms of the clients that I work with, um, we've got some incredibly sophisticated uh, organizations who are on top of things, seem to have the right personnel in place, uh, and you know can appreciate and are lucky enough to have people uh, at the top of their organizational ladders who have a nice understanding of what needs to be done, enough understanding of the technical aspects of what they're dealing with. And then there are other organizations who are smaller, have less resources, and not for lack of, of effort or wanting to be ready and doing the right thing, but there is a there's automatically going to be a depth and capacity issue, particularly because the cyber landscape mm -hmm. evolves so quickly. Um, and being able to maintain your you know, knowledge on, on those issues is hard for anyone. It's hard for us who, who, you know, do it every day. We live and breathe it, let alone for an executive or a founder who's trying to do 87 things at the same time. Uh, so I guess for those, uh, you know, for those individuals, uh, what do you think the right answer and approach is? You know, I, I, I love that question because one of the things I'm constantly having to remind, be they third party law firms or even, you know, some of my um, friends in the industry, is your average community bank is 45 employees and 200 million in size. So when I'm asking, when we're talking about new regs, supervision, how to get up to speed, it's always coming back to how do I, how do we make this work for that 45th employee? Um, you've got to, and really thinking about oftentimes many of our banks operate as small businesses. So I do think that there's a number of, and I've seen this within even the community banks that I inter interface with, with the importance of bringing in really talented board members and doing the work to find at least one board member with a cybersecurity or technical background. Um, there is probably someone at in just about any, and, and that pushes banks away from the traditional place of putting your largest or best customers on your board of directors. What you may be looking for is a professor or someone who uh, works at a local tech company, or even I have one bank that has the guy who runs the local computer shop as one of the board of directors because he at least gets tech and networking. So those people are available, but I do think it asks banks to shift. Uh, reaching out to your cores, to your other third parties, to your state associations, all really important to come up with some good expertise. Um, and getting, you know, there's a part of just of, of tech, and I, I'm going to use a gamer term because I'm also a closeted gamer, which at some point you just that's amazing. That's amazing. That's that's amazing. And that's a different conversation. <laughs> but there's a part of it, as my nephews like to tell me when we play Call of Duty together, get good. There's a part of it that just requires. <laughs> Tell you where I am. Um, there's a part of this that is just doing the hard work of getting yourself educated in an area that may be really uncomfortable, um, that that's not known to you. And you know, for those senior leadership who've been operating on one part of the bank for a lifetime and know it well, having to dig in and get more familiar with the cybersecurity technical aspects of it isn't comfortable. And uh, training in the bank, training your staff, anti you know anti fraud, anti phishing. There's a lot of things where banks can get good, and but it does require work. And I am seeing banks of all sizes, senior leadership who came up through the banking and financial track, putting in the time and effort to get good. Um, and I think there's that's a real piece of it too. It's not going away. 
<laughs> no, certainly not. And certainly, it- certainly. So we've talked about uh, what smaller organizations uh, should do, ought to do um, to get themselves up to speed and make sure that they're educated so they can meet all of their not only uh, compliance obligations, but security obligations um, and protect their customers the way they ought to. On the flip side, what do we do about regulators and lawmakers who suffer maybe from the same lack of depth on these issues, yet they're the ones writing rules and writing writing laws for us? Uh, mm-hmm. I am not going to put you on the spot or ask you to name any names, <laughs> but, I, but I know that for those of us who interact um, with the regulatory bodies who do a lot of the work here, again, not necessarily for lack of effort, but I think especially lawmakers who mm-hmm. like to speak in platitudes about these issues. Uh, I don't think that it's, you know, uh, it would surprise anyone to hear me say that maybe there is not the same appreciation or depth of understanding for what they are um, imposing and requiring a lot of these organizations to do, and they don't really have an appreciation for it themselves. How do we go about educating those lawmakers and those regulators in a more efficient Mm way? Uh, So I'm going to take that in two buckets. We'll talk about the uh, legislators and then get to the the regulators. Um, I I think your comment earlier about the cybersecurity becoming this hot political issue. it is something that people like to talk about, especially more as we have more kind of headline breaches. And, and that creates its own weird dynamics around, let's have hearings, there should be a law. Um, we are, and as far as the then kind of lack of depth around technology generally, I mean, the, I would encourage people to look at something. We had the social media hearings a couple of months ago some of the questions that were, and even if you go back further and look at some of the very early hearings we had around you know, the internet, there's the famous, you know, internet is a series of tubes, <laughs> which I'd like <laughs> to say that, that, that Washington has evolved past that. Um, some, some parts of Washington have, others haven't. And there's still a real lack of depth around, and we're going to have a hearing on Friday around cloud. So I'm interested. There's been a couple of hearings on AI. I'm, I, there's more of it talk happening. Um, that's important, at least, at least it's in conversation. But to your point, I'm, you're not, I'm not seeing the, the depth. We will have to see what potential legislation could look like. The situation right now in D.C. is such, I doubt we're going to be seeing much in the way of legislation actually moving. It's an election year and things tend to just, they're slow anyway. It's going to be slower. Sometimes that lack of speed kind of works to industry's advantage because it does allow time for folks to kind of get a bit more educated, to get good. Um, the other piece of it, though, is from the, from the regulatory perspective, and in some ways, we've definitely seen some of the, the changes, as I was discussing earlier, with the profile and the willingness to um, look at other expertise on the planet that does cybersecurity and bring in that expertise into our own regs. That actually is a, a, a really important pivot that we haven't seen. Uh, we know for a fact the FFIEC handbooks, which for a long time has been kind of the cornerstone of how we approach tech and cybersecurity, those are being updated and they are looking at really transforming the way they approach those handbooks. So the way the handbooks have been versus the way the handbooks may be going forward may definitely change. Um, because again, you have to be responsive to what we're seeing and having handbooks that are decade old and in print doesn't do that. 
Right. Um, so this seems to be a level of self-awareness and a willing to find new approaches uh, on the regulatory side. I'm but also very political. It's, you know, it's, it's very, yeah. it's very political. Um, and one has to wonder sometimes when you see, again, lawmakers speaking in platitudes, um, because, you know, whatever the next headline is after, you know, the Capital One breach, for example, uh, it's, it's a, it's a, I don't like to be cynical, but I'm going to be honest. I'm super cynical. Uh, it's a ratings grab. It's a headlines grab. They want a good quote. They want to impress their constituents. They want all sorts of things that are not necessarily motivated by the core issue. Many are. I don't want to, I don't want to speak in total generalities. Um, but the cynic in me says that this is now an issue that they've decided to make uh, because it affects such a wide number of people. And my goodness, mm-hmm. the stats are, are the stats are staggering. I think the first six months of 2019, uh, we've got 3,800 publicly disclosed uh, data breaches with 4.1 billion records compromised. So this, mm-hmm. the numbers are staggering. Uh, but when we're talking about getting to the real core of the issue and fixing things and fixing problems, maybe, maybe that's not what the lawmaker's first goal is in, you know, getting in front of a TV camera or getting in front of a reporter to start talking about these issues necessarily is. Uh, I am very interested on what your viewpoints are regarding sort of the level of responsibility, you know, and potential, you know, regulatory fines or enforcement action for organizations who, despite their best efforts, still get bested by the hackers, still get bested by the criminals. Um, yeah. I think it's it's difficult. If you think of something like Cap One, their performance from an incident response and recovery perspective I don't know any company, financial services or not, that from the day they were notified of a breach to the day that they were able to notify the public and simultaneously announce an arrest of the hacker was something like 10 days. That was phenomenal. I I don't think you can actually get an arrest faster than that. And in that instance, it it appears that the the data was not released, not on the dark web or anything. It was a very particular series of facts. And I don't really think we necessarily know everything going on there, pending litigation, what have you. But that is a, a tremendous model of how good, at least from a perspective of breach response, it can be. Um, the other issues around, you know, what is our ability to, I, I think the bigger issue for me really comes down to, there's a lot of different companies that hold financial data that aren't necessarily banks. That's and, absolutely right. And I, and I get, I'm, I find myself as a consumer becoming increasingly annoyed when I get a notification from a, an institute or company that has my credit card data that I bought something at a decade ago online, and I get a notification from them now that there was some kind of a, a breach and my information was compromised. At least in banking, we are regulated. There are, there's a container around how we actually have to protect the data that we have. Obviously, we're one of the top targets. I do question kind of with the, the everybody else that also touches financial data. Oh, and for sure. That, that's a whole separate conversation uh, yeah, about, about information, information hygiene. Why do you have things that you don't need anymore? Um, I mean, yeah, who that, get the honestly, memo it's, a, it's a whole other data. podcast and episode because we, <laughs> I mean, much, much of it, much of it is, is, is quite, is quite ridiculous. 
but you're absolutely right. What's interesting to me about what you said about Capital One is that 10 days is, I would agree with you, um, a phenomenal response time. And so much happened in such a short period of time. Yet we don't see headlines talking about what a great job Capital One did in response to their breach, right? (laughs) That's not something we read about. No, and I think the there's so many other headlines coming out of you know around the country at the moment that's going to be taking up all the air. But we didn't get. I mean, the the Kaplan breach kind of came and went pretty quickly, and the focus that we're seeing in in DC really seems to be around the the operational piece, um, and and and, and it seems to be a way to get after big tech. I mean, if you're looking at yes. AWS. And uh, yes, Microsoft and Google, that, the actual uh, the cloud a little bit there. So it seems to be the real the focus right now is on those actors and not necessarily on financial services. Um, so I'm interested again. It, it'll be interesting to see how this, this upcoming hearing goes, and and you know what kind of um, you know it, are we seeing more technological savvy than we may have seen in, in prior years around tech issues. Um, unfortunately, I don't think, um, I think the idea, to your point, if we stop looking at cybersecurity from, in a broad lens and start trying to nitpick around, it must be this piece of tech or that piece of tech or this operator, um, I think we're losing the bigger message around how do you secure financial data, personal data, of wherever it may reside, bank or otherwise. And then you start getting into the larger, you know, privacy um, conversation, which, uh, you know, all that's kind of, like I said earlier, with all that's kind of starting to intersect a bit. So I think I'd like to kind of end with this question. Uh, We'll call it a philosophical one. But in terms of what I do for a living, what you do for a living, in terms of making sure... um, on my end, I'm, I am there to make sure that uh, the organizations which I counsel have compliant policies and procedures, that they are meeting regulatory requirements, that uh, when I have to sit before a regulator um, and defend them uh, during an audit, what have you, that I can say, here's the list of rules we have complied with A through Z. Is a compliant environment necessarily a secure one? I'd argue that even though that that is part of my job, my day-to-day, I'd argue that that is not necessarily the case. And I'm very interested in your thoughts on that. No, it's, it's actually, it's a really good question. And one that I talk a lot about when I am doing any kind of trainings or presentations to banks, because Post-financial crisis, pre-financial crisis, we approached banking supervision from the safety and soundness perspective in that compliance checklist kind of way. And if I completed the checklist, I must be safe. That was kind of the mindset that we approached, I think, banking supervision generally. And what happened post-crisis is that we're realizing the checklist doesn't work anymore. And we are seeing a cultural shift from kind of a supervisory perspective as well as kind of inside of the internal to the banks is we're seeing that shift away from a pure compliance checklist mindset into that risk, ma- that risk management mindset. And that two institutions similarly situated with even similar business lines and technology may actually identify their risk very differently. And they also have to have the expertise and the ability in-house to understand their idiosyncratic risk 
where that risk lies and how you mitigate that risk. And that risk may not be on the checklist. And that is creating a lot of uncertainty and um, a certain level of, of, you know, body anxiety, I think, internal of a lot of banks, because having that cultural shift away from the compliance checklist, where you least felt safe and may not have been, towards a more risk management perspective, which can be very individual to even that risk manager and that institution, may in fact bring you more security, but feel much less secure. I suppose that is the magical balance that going forward, our organizations are going to have to find and hopefully can find that with the assistance of people uh, like you and I, Um, but trying to figure out, we still need the checklists because the checklists are what the regulators use when, when they're, you know, making sure that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Um, But it can't be form over substance. The substance is so much more important now than it's ever been, and it will continue to grow in importance. Um, Thank you so much for your time, and it has been an absolute pleasure. Um, I can't wait until we get to have that cocktail and talk about, uh, I'm still totally curious about this gamer, this gamer situation, Um, and and I am sure that we will get there. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, thank you again, and uh, I thank you for geeking out with me. Anytime. I'm happy to geek out with you. 